Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 29, and uh, Maggie and I are joined today by a special guest, uh, Dr. Faith Acker. Faith is one of our uh, one of our, our long-term faculty members at Signum University. She was um, teaching with me, actually, in the very first course we ever taught at Signum University. Um, and uh, so we, we, you know, Faith and Maggie were just having a wonderful discussion about the Princess Bride uh, in one of our Signum courses courses recently, which, uh, which Maggie was, uh, she mentioned last time. Um, so we have decided we are, um, uh, we, we, we are talking about the Princess Bride today. We've been wanting to look at a few other examples. Of course, we spent a great deal of time talking about uh, adaptation in Tolkien, of course, especially focused on the Rings of Power. Um, but we've been saying, you know, we, we're really interested in looking at some other examples of adaptations to do some sort of different case studies. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, I think that um, it's it's really important as a Tolkien fan, as you're beginning to kind of think through adaptation and what this means and how this works. It's it's hard when you're lo- when you're trying to do that with an adaptation of something that you're really like committed to, right? Um, so to kind of look at some other examples. So over the next few weeks, we're planning to to look at um, some. Uh, perhaps less emotional uh, <laughs> adaptations. Uh, I mean, not that people don't aren't emotionally attached to The Princess Bride by any means, of course, but their attachment tends to be different. I have, um, I don't think, actually, have you two, have either one of you ever met anyone who was a Princess Bride book fan who, like, hates and is offended by the movie? Hates and offended, no. I have met those that like the book better. Right. But it's it's not usually at the expense of the film. Yeah. I mean, like, the, the, the kind of dynamic that you see, I mean, like that we see in Tolkien fandom all the time that you see in, you know, like Dune fandom. Like, you know, there are lots of places where you get this, this whole kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, sort of hardened minority, right, of people who are just like, I have no truck with what they like. They've, you know, done horrible things in the adaptation. I've never met anyone whose reaction to the Princess Bride film is like that. You know, even people who did, like, grow up loving the book or whatever, you know, uh, rarely seem to have that. And so for that reason, again, the Princess Bride is also a really interesting example because it's such a great example. Like, it's such a positive example of a successful uh, film adaptation of a book. And I think... um, Everyone, I think, would agree that even those who don't agree that the Princess Bride film is in is better than the book, which many do feel that way. Um, uh, but even if you don't go so far as that, I think that everybody agrees that the Princess Bride is a phenomenally successful adaptation of a book. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting um, uh, uh, point of discussion to kind of begin with. So that's the plan here today. And with that, I'm going to kind of hand things over uh, because uh, uh, and let sort of Maggie and Faith sort of lead the show here. Um, uh, Maggie, of course. So uh, Maggie decided to get uh, like really into character for this discussion. Yeah, pretty meta. So she's actually literally sick in bed uh, right now. I've got got my 8-bit baseball up. I'm ready. (laughs) ready to go. <laughs> exactly. I'm still so, here, but bear with me, guys. I'm not feeling 100%, but I'm literally in bed in my PJs at 9.30 p.m., so I think I'll be able to get through this. But uh, So that, but puts, yeah, uh, that puts us in the role of the grandfather coming to read by your bedside and have this discussion here. So 
where is your mustache? I want to see the tweed cap <laughs> post haste. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I'm already excited because like, I don't know about you, Faith, but like, even just listening to that, like three minutes of Corey, you talking, I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I want to talk about that. And that part's really interesting. <laughs> like even just the phrase, like a successful movie adaptation is such a difficult sentence of like, what does that mean? And yeah. who defines yeah. that? And, but I, I do feel with this one, like one of my gut things of why this was so accepted and successful is the love of the director and the author as screenwriter. So you have like this real passion behind the creation mm -hmm. and any changes made are made with the creator's blessing, you know? So like there's such an element of that that is huge within fandom. That's the number one thing we probably hear about Lord of the Rings adaptations. Tolkien would roll in his grave. Tolkien would hate this. Tolkien would we don't know that first of right. all because i can't ask him but in this one he's fine with it he made that decision you know yeah. so there is a certain element of like anyway we're, we're running before we're walking i'm gonna give a little blitz on the off chance you have lived under a rock and fezzik hasn't told andre the giant to throw it at you um i'll give you a little bit of background about princess bride I love seeing new people in here too it looks like a few folks are here just because the princess bride title so also the name Ambrosius Aurelius, uh, Aurelia, sorry, Aurelianus, well done. I like the Arthurian reference there. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> welcome all. So I'm gonna share my screen. Um, those of you that were in Faith's um, foundations course at Signum will recognize this presentation. So uh, strap in. Okay. Oh, see if I do this though, I can't see my notes. <laughs> Can I do it like this? Sure. You don't need notes. You know all this. Ah, that's cute. Um, sure. Just minimize the like top bar thing, like over there, like right above the thing. That thing. Lower, lower. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That just makes it bigger. There you go. But then, Slide. if I open this up, this is what you're gonna see. Yeah. Now you see my notes. No, we don't actually. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's a win. Okay. <laughs> Bear with me, gang. Okay, so we are looking at Princess Bride. Let's get back. I don't need to tell you guys about elision and interpolation. I feel like this crowd is fairly familiar with the terms of adaptation. Um, and like Corey was saying, like, I don't know, the whole reason we started wanting to do this podcast was to just talk about some tools in your toolkit when looking at adaptation. So it is really nice to be able to take us outside of Lord of the Rings and Rings of Power and look at something like this. I can't remove emotion from this one. This is my go-to when I'm sick. I watch this to feel better. So very appropriate for this evening. Um, but this is a novel written in 1973 by William Goldman, and it was later adapted into a film in 1987 directed and co-produced by Rob Reiner. Um, he's, he's kind of a famous dude, uh, mostly known for Stand By Me amongst other things, but it was after Stand By Me, um, he was talking to some executives at Paramount and they were asking what his next film would be. And he really wanted to make Princess Bride. He'd been given the book by his father as a kid um, and just really loved it and wanted to adapt it, but found that it wasn't available um, because Goldman himself had bought the rights back with his own money after many attempts to get it made, um, which failed. And, and those attempts were really interesting. Robert Redford was attached to one, Christopher Reeve was attached to one. Um, and eventually it was uh, Norman Lear, who Reiner knew from All in the Family, had funded the production of This is Spinal Tap, which if you haven't seen This is Spinal Tap, that is like 
a genius mockumentary. We just watched um, that with my kids a few months ago. Uh, oh no way! You know, in in our like, this is one of those things that you really have to have to see, you know. And uh, uh, they loved it actually. The exploding drummers was a was a was a favorite, but yeah, was a real hit. Also, it's, it's one a- of the funniest trailers. Uh, the trailer <laughs> is all about a cheese festival. <laughs> I did not know that. I'll find oh, that go look YouTube. up the trailer on YouTube. It's amazing. Oh, that's glorious. So I love that it was that kind of relationship that spurned on Princess Bride, right? Like it's it's the guy that got that made that he was like, you know what I want to do? This wholesome, wonderful fairy tale of, of a sick child being read to by his grandfather. Sounds lovely. Um, yeah. So it was made really cheaply. It was a budget of 16 million um, and box office was 30 million. Box office, I mean, we don't talk numbers a ton on this, but that's something I'm always super interested in because it just kind of gives you a bit of a marker. Granted, this is 1987. We're not talking about opening weekends of 125 million or anything like that. But a budget of 16 million and a return of 30 million, that's pretty good. That's you know nice and representative, but it wasn't by any means a blockbuster. But what it had was staying power. Um, it was the reception after its release that was so massive. I forgot that I have PowerPoint up and I should be changing slides. um so we're still doing still doing overview here but um it had really good reviews if you guys remember siskel and ebert gave it two thumbs up uh and talked about it as as a really positive thing um and said that the film was fun for the whole family uh time later listed it as the best of 87 um it continued to make best lists uh number 50 on bravo's 120th movies number 88 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Passions, um, list of 100 greatest film stories, 46 in Channel 4's 50 greatest comedy. You get it. There's a lot. Like, it has a longevity, um, unlike many other films made with this kind of budget, um, with a fairly unknown cast um, back in the day. This was Robin Wright Penn's first film. It was one of Perry Alley's first film. Andre the Giant was certainly well-known but for wrestling, not for acting, so a very different field. Oh, they're gonna. I, I don't think in. it was Carrie Elway's first film. He was in a, a a Prince horror vampire thing. They were, but yeah. really minor roles and stuff. He definitely done things before this, but this was one of his first oh, yeah. ones, and I would say probably his first leading role. Yeah. Um, and obviously, he's done loads of incredible things after it. And it's not like this is the film that made any of them. It was it was just kind of a, I don't know, a subtle little thing that didn't didn't draw a lot of attention initially, but then gained a lot of following. Um, let me go back to this. Longevity and other adaptations. Okay, so longevity, uh, Legacy was pretty massive, cult classic after its release. Um, it is so quotable. You can find these quotes on t-shirts, on bags, everywhere. And I can't help but like, you know, go through presentations like this and not insert a thousand different quotes left, right, and center. It's fantastic. Um, in the Writers Guild of America, it was the 84th best screenplay of all time. That's that's pretty heavy. Um, and in 2014, Carrie Elwes wrote a memoir, As You Wish, and Conceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride, which is a lovely behind-the-scenes story um, about some of the, the memories they have of putting this um, film together. And I told Corey this morning, I found out last night that I am now one degree away from the Princess Bride. I was watching <laughs> it again last night and I was watching the credits and it's like, you know, a nice calming way for me to come down after watching the movies, watching the credits. And this name came up 
And I texted my friend Kat, who I worked with for years. She's a producer. And I said, was your mom known as Carrie Evans before she was Carrie Evans Cooper? And she said, yeah, why? I was like, was your mom script supervisor on The Princess Bride? (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, she was. And then she sent me a screenshot that when Carrie always came out with this book, there's a number of, of personal photos in there. And one of the photos he posted on Twitter, and it's Carrie's handwriting on the the photo and cat recognized it and was like oh that's my mom (laughs) so that was exciting anyway so i fangirled a little bit at that moment um we will try to get carrie on at some point too and cat as well because cat's worked on you know harry potter and james bond and pirates of the caribbean which is a ride adaptation which would be a whole other thing for us to talk about but yeah anyway um 2018 fred savage reprised the role of the grandson in deadpool 2 which is hysterical if you haven't seen it um, and there were also a bunch of uh, adaptations and retellings of this that it, it was trying to be, uh, they tried to adapt it into a musical that didn't get very far. There was a lot of contention between the composer um, and William Goldman. Um, there was a staged live dramatic reading of The Princess Bride with an incredible cast, Paul Rudd, Mindy Kalick, Patton Oswalt, Kevin Pollack, um, Gordon Vizchik, Carrie Elways came back to play Humperdinck funny i love that and fred savage reprised his role as the grandson as like a 30 year old 40 year old, 35 year old um there's a bunch of games that have come out there's a load of board games um there are a number of video games uh in 2020 there was a fan-made recreation of the princess bride called home movie the princess bride it's glorious if you get a chance to watch it excuse me and it was a fundraiser for um, uh, World Central Kitchen Charity, so a hunger charity. And it has an incredible cast. So these top A-list stars all filmed themselves doing different elements of the movie um, and put it out there and, and raised funds. So I was just re-watching part of it and like Jack Black is Wesley climbing up the hills of, of the cliffs of insanity and it's hysterical. So we'll put some links in the, uh, in the description later, I think. Um, there is discussion of a potential remake. Uh, this has not been well received by fans or cast members um, for the reasons that we've talked about on this show. Of It's really hard to take something beloved and change it because you're messing with something perfect to most people's minds. Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis uh, was quite famous for saying there's a shortage of perfect films in the world. It would be a shame to waste this one. Uh, which is a lovely quote from the princess bride so well played well played um so that's pretty much my sum up uh i did put a couple things in here of just the imagery that we've had to show you the classic fairy tale motif that it's come from um this is i'm going to turn this part over to faith if that's all right with you faith to kind of talk a little bit about some of the differences like what exists and then i think it'd be cool if we could just kind of chat about why you think those things might have happened yeah, because I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that I, I bet you way more people are familiar with the film than the book. I'm sure that there are a oh, lot yeah. of people who who need, uh, uh, you know, some sort of summary of, of the of how the book differs from the from the film. Well, one of the things that was so funny, I've just finished teaching this in a class. And of course, when you're teaching it and when you're prepping to teach it, you go back and you read a, a text with a completely new eye. So I think yeah. this was my... Oh, I don't know, like my fourth or fifth time through The Princess Bride. I've had it read aloud to me. I've read it in a book club. Uh, I've read it personally, you know, quietly inside my head, like we normally do when we think of reading. Um, and, 
even prepping for the class, I was talking about the frame narrative. And one of the things that jumped out to me in Maggie's summary when she was like, this is a wholesome film. And I'm like, yeah, but, but the book is not really wholesome. No, like no. there's this whole weird scene. It, and if, if you haven't read the book, um, the frame narrative of the grandson and his grandfather reading the book is built into the structure of the princess bride. And so um, I don't think I brought my 25th anniversary edition today and it doesn't say it, but a lot of times if you're buying this book on Amazon or half price books or whatever, that's not even around anymore. But if you're, if you're buying the book, sometimes it'll say an adaptation or abridged and the abridgment is part of the joke. It's the joke, yeah. And yeah. and so you'll get a book and like I spent I probably when I was like sixteen, I think I spent like two years, like in the Hello, in the early days the of the source. internet trying to find the original. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I built you know, and I bought into it. This is like kind of pre Amazon and very early days of A B E books and like, well, why can I only find the abridgment? <laughs> and, I, and I knew that that Florian and Gilder were fake, but it didn't occur to me that there wasn't an original book. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, it, well, and why it, would it, it if the author tells you something you yeah. believe it? Yeah. Well, I mean, but there are so many other lies, right? So the, the right. Florian and Gilder. Um, so in the in the novel, the whole first the introduction, which is really part of the novel, is the story of William Goldman going to find a copy of Smorgenstern's The Princess Bride for his son. And he does this while he's in Hollywood getting hit upon by a sexy star in a bikini. And there are all these jokes about how his marriage is failing. And he finally gets this copy of the book uh, by making 100 long distance calls from California to New York. And when he and then he gets it dropped off in the original language, which is made up and also in English for his son and his son hates it. And he's only had it read to him before. So when he gets home, he picks up the book and goes, well, of course my son hated this. This is so boring. And so the novel is structured with the same kind of excisions that the grandfather puts in, even, even to the point of like, don't worry, she doesn't get eaten by the sharks, which is a slide I've got for you later. Um, and then periodically he'll have little sides like at this point there are, you know, I don't remember what the number is, like 26 pages on the hats of the Princess of Gilder. Um, and those get taken out of the film. Yeah. Uh, right. So there's there's this sexy story. There's this trouble with his wife. There's some comments about how Morgan Stern refers to his wife, uh, which we never get to see directly. Um and it, so the whole frame, the, the plot of the actual story of Wesley and Buttercup is almost identical. But what really gets shifted is that this frame novel gets made ridiculously more wholesome um, and, and streamlined. Yeah. Well, and it really does, it sort of reduces a layer of, the, like the, the book has this whole other layer to it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there the film itself already is doing this like here is the story. Right. And then here is the the uh, retelling of the story. Mm -hmm. um, right. With the, the 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 grandfather grandson dynamics of it and voiceovers. But the book itself then has a third layer around that where we get the, you know, the author, William Goldman and his uh, his analysis and mm -hmm. some an offhand commentary on on that that story that's being shaped because he was remember it was him like he was the kid right he was mm -hmm. the kid who like and he, he he was looking for the book because he loved it being read to it and it's he only realized that his grandfather 
expurgated it while father. reading it aloud. Or father, right? His father, right? Um, while, and so he and so he never realized that he wasn't getting the whole story and is trying to reproduce that. That anyway. So th- there's this entire other level of like clever complexity um, and this whole like quasi editorial voice, right. That we get uh, repeatedly in the book, um, which doesn't come and we get a memory of it, you know, in like, she does not get eaten by the eels at this time. Right. But Mm -hmm. it's really just a a fairly faint memory of the much more insistent editorial voice that we get uh, in the original. And, and sometimes he'll stop and he'll say like, here is where my father said, and those are usually reproduced pretty accurately as the grandfather right. making the same comment but other times he'll say like here's a paragraph i wrote because i thought morgan stern's paragraph was stupid and i yeah. wanted to give you this resolution and there's a really funny one uh where he says i added this thing but my editor said since i'm abridging i can't add this thing but if you write to my publisher <laughs> yes you can you can get this paragraph and apparently um the the publishing house actually had a fake letter one of my students found where if you sent in for it they would send you this letter about how it was tied up in litigation uh, and with <laughs> and the it has Morgan Stern is yes. really like convincing uh, it looks and, like a legit and even like my introduction to the 25th anniversary edition he's still maintaining the fiction that this is a, a real book and in the 30th anniversary edition he and his son go to the museum in Florin and they see the the sword, the six-fingered sword, and they go into the archives and they find the Buttercup's baby that becomes added onto it. So it's yeah. it's just layers of layers of, of pretense. I don't I haven't found any instance where William Goldman actually gives up and admits that it's fictional. No. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting actually. Phil was asking how would you be how would you go about doing that? Like adding that third layer in a film. Um, and I don't know, Maggie, you could probably come up with some better examples. The thing that I immediately think of is the end of Blazing Saddles, right? When all of a sudden they're like, the fight scene spills off of the sets and they're like, you know, going through the movie studio, like going through the sets of other movies and things like that. Um, you know, talking to people standing outside the theater, uh, watching the, the film end, that they're doing. And, you know, the end yeah. of Monty Python, Holy Grail, where the cops right. come in and break them up, but the budget's over. So it's breaking that third wall, you know, or breaking yeah. the fourth wall. Of, of just taking us out of that story. But the frame is still in the story. The frame is acceptable. And also I feel like the frame that they chose is so familiar. So that really made it helpful. I mean, these, this is an era that grew up on, what was it, Friday or Saturday night, the Disney classic movie that always started with a storybook opening and reading from the story. And we've seen it recreated. I just saw it, the opening of Willow, the new Willow adaptation. The first shot is the book opening and the picture from the book turning into the story. So having this kind of literal framework of a book manifested in a father, grandfather opening the book makes sense. We all know what to expect and what's going. And then it also does set that tone of family friendly fun. Mm -hmm. No bikini clad ladies in this one. (laughs) Right. Right. I was thinking too of Clue, which doesn't work with the frame narrative, mm-hmm. but when it was released, I think it went, it sent different endings to different theaters. And that's one of the things that Goldman does. He has, I think it's six, it's a huge number of different endings across the novel and then running on into the Buttercup's Baby sequel. He keeps trying to end it and the film takes a different storybook ending to all of those. Uh, but it, it wants that, that push is one of the things that I miss in the film. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's nice having that question at the end. And I did love that about Clue. And I grew up watching Clue and loved it, but I didn't know about that cinema thing until I was studying adaptation. And people were going to see the film dozens of times to try to see all the endings. And then there's my entrepreneurial marketing head going, that's genius. <laughs> They're going to go see it dozens of times. <laughs> Clever. Yeah. Yes, that is the flames on the side of my head movie, Phil. Yeah. But anyway, so I, Faith, I think you were, you were going to talk about book and film oh yeah um so as i was saying the 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 buttercup wesley story is pretty accurate um and the omissions that there are or the changes that there are are, are so glaring but like in the in the book like true love isn't is is uh it's better than everything except cough drops and in in the film it's the mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich right. um Things like the eels. I think the eels are sharks in the book. Uh, things like the the pit of despair. It's actually the five-tiered zoo of death, which is one of the things that I also miss the most. Uh, and when, when Maggie came to my class, she was talking about how uh, you just can't reproduce a five-tiered zoo of death with different animals in different levels. That's money and animal handlers and yes. and crazy shots. All sorts of things that are just real difficult to do in a, a physical process. And I was actually, the, the again, tangent, that's what we do. I was just listening to a clip of uh, J.D. and Patrick from Rings of Power talking about the dwarven children with their helmets mm. on. And the whole reason they did that was because it takes too long to get dwarvish makeup on that they didn't have children actors for long enough legally to put the makeup on and have them act. So they just put helmets on them. Wow. Solving problems. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the same with the five levels of the pit of despair with a load of animals. We didn't need all of that. What we needed was Wesley threatened in a hidden space that was menacing. Got it. Right. But I think what we lose from that is some of the darkness around Humperdinck. Like there's a, a bit where the book says like he went out to kill something every day. Right. Um, and then it was so tedious because he also had to run his country, you know. So he just had all these animals collected and he would go find the one to hunt and kill in a shorter amount of time, not to take away from his other responsibilities. Um, and then, of course, we quite lose. A, oh, that's quite a big change to have Humperdinck be real cruel in the text. And he's yeah. just. It's kind of a well. There, there, there are dumb. hints of it, right? With the like, you, you know how I love to watch you work, right? I mean, there, yeah. there are moments like that where we can, we, we, but, but it's, it's certainly not emphasized in the same. Kind but even of way. that kind of gets you a laugh, right? Like right. even that is like, oh, you know how I love to watch you work, torturing right. humans. Like that's not dark, right. and we kind of want to giggle at it. So the tone's real different. Yeah, yeah. That's a big shift. Yeah. No, I, I think we lose a lot of the evil of, of Humperdinck. And one of the fun things I learned when I was, was prepping for my class is that the actor who plays Humperdinck, whose name I've just blanked on, played a vampire two years earlier. Uh, and so this, and he had the same hair and he, he dressed up as like this posh gentleman. And then he just had <laughs> vampire teeth that came out. And it has, it has added this wonderful layer of, intertextual nuance to how i how i see humperdinck <laughs> now as like the secret vampire oh um, funny i know and like there would be that association if you looked the same yeah yeah um uh, people are saying chris, chris sarandon, sarandon and frightening Fright is the film yeah yeah mm -hmm. we can always rely upon our viewers to supply <laughs> us with the information we can't remember yeah i really don't have screen 
width to uh, Google. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and then I, we talked about the frame narrative a little bit. And then the other thing we missed that I'm sad about is there's a much bigger, there's, well, there's a bigger backstory for Inigo Montoya. It's much richer and more detailed. And, and I miss that a lot. But there's, there's just the tiniest hints of backstory for Fezzik. Mm -hmm. And some of that might be an actor choice because I know they were a little more limited in what they could do with Andre the Giant. Uh, but the the backstory of Fezzik in the book is just detailed and rich. And like his parents farmed him out to hunt, to fight people. And there's a line in the film where he says, like, it's just been so long since I fought somebody. You're really at an advantage right. here. Right. I fought because only one person. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, used to fighting these huge that. groups, and that's all explained in the book. So it's staying yeah. true to the book, but it just yes. comes off as this throwaway line in the film. Yeah, one line which does point to like a, a huge section of the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and even the rhyming thing—it's how he calms himself down, and mm. so it's and 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 um, Inigo knows it. So in the book, when Fezzik's having a bad day, as he is often in the movie. Uh, Inigo will come in and give him a line with an easy rhyme. And once you know that, you can listen for Inigo. He kind of hesitates and feeds him the rhyme word. Mm -hmm. um, and you can just see Fezzik like, oh, and then he comes up with it. And it's like there are all these these great layers in the story that they they pulled in. But you would just miss them if you hadn't read the book. And I think that's one of the things that's so powerful in an adaptation when you're able to have actors that understand that nuance and be able to play the lines that way to develop that relationship. Because if mm -hmm. you just look at lines on a page, again, it could be farcical, but I feel like between those two, it ended up being a really sweet kindness mm -hmm. that oh, Inigo yeah. was doing, you know? It was like, I got you. Like, I know he just tried to mortify you, but I, I got you, we're yeah. okay. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now Phil is right in saying that one of the things that made the film success. So, you know, so Faith, you're talking about things that were missing, right? Things that we mm -hmm. don't get uh, in the film that we do get in the book. Um, and Phil is pointing out that, of course, that he's, the vital thing is that you don't, you don't, if you just see the film, you don't miss them. Like, it, it doesn't ruin the film. Like, there, there are, you mm -hmm. know, lots of places where things are being cut down like that. You know, again, like that whole section of Fezzik's backstory being expressed in, in encapsulated in one line or alluded to in one line. Mm -hmm. um, and often that can be those moments where you're like watching the film, you're, you know, where you're aware that you're missing something like you don't know what it is, but, you know, you're aware that you're missing something um, or um, <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. So um, uh, so I, I agree that that's handled very well uh, in uh, in the film. It's hard. It's hard to think of an example in that film where that kind of compression choice that they've made works poorly. I mean, like all of the examples that we've come up with are things that like, yeah, there's there's this extra dimension in the book. Right. <clears throat> but what they do, I mean, like Maggie, like you were saying about the pit of despair. Right. What they have in the film works really well in the film. Yeah. Right. You know, and uh, uh, even, so even if you don't get there is this this dimension of Humperdinck's character that we lose by not getting him as the you know, sadistic, I kill things for fun on a daily basis kind of, you know, element of his character. Um, uh, but, uh, but again, the choices that they've made are really, really successful choices for the story that they're telling in the film. 
Yeah, and that's one of those, like, I think it's kind of contentious now when I talk about adaptation. If it's not something I'm working on or studying, I watch the film first and I enjoy it. And then I read the book and I enjoy it. You know, like you're, you're allowed to like both, but I do feel like if you go the other direction, you're always looking for what's missing and it's a little bit harder sometimes. But the risk you run with that is that you don't have the freedom to create the world that you're reading in your yes, own brain. You're, you're importing the visuals into the vision. Yeah, yeah, so you lose yeah. that kind of freedom of creativity, but I do find that I tend to enjoy both options. And I don't know, it, it can depend on the text, but I, mean, I, I do feel like this one handled it pretty darn well. There's, there's no element that, I mean, I, I saw the movie dozens of times before I read the book. And I don't feel like there was any point of the movie that was lagging or lacking in reflection of knowing more from the text. It was just a real different interpretation in a, a different medium that was handled pretty well. Yeah. And I think one of the other things they did really well was that to balance out Inigo's rhymes, they gave, sorry, Fezzik's rhymes, they gave Inigo and Vizzini each their own verbal thing. Trope too. So yeah. inconceivable yeah. is not in the book as much mm -hmm. as it feels like it is, or at least proportionally not as much as it is in the film. Um, I'd have to I'd have to check the number of times it's actually there, but I think it's fewer. And then the that mantra of hello my name is Inigo Montoya also is a lot more subdued in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not verbatim every time. In fact it changes every time. So by giving them those repetitive <clears throat> things they really contextualized the rhyme and made it work in the in the film context. Yeah, yeah. There's so much. That's actually a really good example of one of the things that I really appreciate about the film is that, you know, obviously one of the most common thing you just books are so much more roomy. You know, like mm. you can do so much more, and uh, you know, you can. Um, whereas, you know, a film has to be so much tighter. You know, everything has to come together. You know, you need to do so much more with so much less, and you can't. You can afford to kind of, I don't know, like do a little side thing in books, and so you, you know, where you just can't, which you could not do in the same way in a film. However, um, there were a bunch of places where I felt that the 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 kind of the compression was really beneficial. I mean, it's one of the way it's one of the reasons that I, I do have the princess bride on my list of films that I think are better than the books. Um, really top of my list of films that are better than the books. I don't think, I don't have any example that I think is higher for me than, than, than this one. Um, but one of the things that for me gives it that status, one of the ways in which I think that the, the screenplay really does work is that, many of the things that are cut instead of being things that, and there are things faith, like you were talking about um, that, you know, were really delightful to read in the book. And I certainly came to the book much later than the films um, myself. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, I, there are so many things where the book has been trimmed down and I'm like, you know, I, it's better without that. You know, it's and it, even the example you were giving about Inigo Montoya's, you know, uh, the "You killed my father" line, right? I mean that um, that that not only is successful, but is, I mean, one of the what five most iconic, uh, you know, lines moments, you know, in the entire film, um, and the way in which for like the, the brevity of the film has really forced a lot of those, um, you know, kind of 
uh, uh, sort of edges out of the story. Uh, there's a lot of extra stuff that doesn't really feel like it contributes all that much in the book. At least mm-hmm. I, that's the impression that I had yeah. from it. But I think one of the challenges so much with compression of text into film is pacing. We talk about pacing so much that it's one of the things that you struggle with more than anything else. Because like you said, a book is so roomy. You don't yeah. have to stress as much about that kind of structured pacing. You can go off on these tangents as long as it carries us with you. And, you know, some parts can be a little bit slower and drag, but that might be the purpose. And it you can't do that as much in a film. And there's a reason there's this three act structure that at 30 minutes, the first rising action is supposed to happen at 45 minutes. This is supposed to happen. Not everybody follows that, but it's just kind of like a proven thing that this kind of pacing works. I feel like what Princess Bride did was match the pacing to what they knew would work using material that existed and what they filled in. Like I'm not a musician, but we talk a lot about music and adaptation in in this show. And I feel like the rhythm that they brought into this film carries the pacing, you know, the sword fights, the chanting, the rhyming, the repetition, the, the hoof beats. There's so many like things that physically move the story forward. Uh, Yeah, I just came up with that now, but I'm like, I feel like we should look at that. (laughs) I feel like there's something that drives the story forward in the actual rhythms of the text. Well, and it probably really helps both that Goldman is abridging or compressing his own work with with outside help, but also at this point, he's a successful Hollywood scriptwriter. So he's had Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He knows what works. He knows how audiences respond. He's had a couple of other slightly less popular films too so he's kind of had the the trial and error mm-hmm. and a little bit of the bravery to try something yeah right. and the support because rob reiner seemed to be well behind him to do what mm-hmm. they envisioned yeah i mean i got the impression and, and maybe in part it's just because of that sort of authorial or editorial frame that goldman puts in um but i mean his frame gives me the impression that the book itself was always meant to be a screenplay, like always wanted to be a screenplay, was only a book because it hadn't been a screenplay, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Um, rather than, again, like somebody who is writing like their great novel and now we're taking the great novel and we're adapting it to film. I mean, there's a sense in which the Princess Bride book is a native citizen of the film world in a way that very Mm -hmm. few books that get adapted to films are, if you see what I mean by that. And I think yeah. that that's kind of connected with the fact or, or or rather the the fact that the author of the book was involved in the screenplay is a like inevitable consequence almost, you know, of that of that kind of. Th- so in, in some ways, you know, there was like never book more primed for screen adaptation than The Princess Bride was in that way. I do wonder what the process is like. I don't know if either of you ever came across, you know, I know that he had some help adapting it and it sure sounds like from the musical attempt adaptation later that he might've been a little bit difficult to work with. I'm I'm just quite curious what his own creative process was like and how this went from book to film. Cause I haven't seen a lot about that in the documentaries and things like that. I don't know if you've come across it. I have not come across, but one of the things that's really interesting in the novel, and I don't know how long it's been since you read the novel, um, <laughs> but, but at the right at the start of it, he goes, this is my favorite book in all the world, and I have never read it. 
And then when he goes through the editing, um, he pretends that he's just going through it once. So he's never going to go back and, and re-edit is, is kind of the vibe that he gives. Is like, oh, and now here's this part. Let me tell you how I remember my father. Um, and it's the feel of it is I'm never going back. Now, I take that to be a bald-faced lie because everything else about the frame novel, frame narrative, is a, a bald-faced lie. So I assume that he methodically worked through painstakingly cutting words and chopping things and simplifying. Um, yeah. But but I've not read anything on it. There are some. I think there. I think his papers are at Columbia. Uh, hmm. But as far as I know, nobody's really even written on the Princess Bride except for the popular books by Carrie Elwes and people. Mm -hmm. Came on faith. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's it's such a shame because next year is the fiftieth anniversary, and I was like, surely there are is like a fiftieth anniversary essays about coming out, but no. Huh. So, so Signal University Press is this <laughs> we happen to so have a link to. it's the 50th anniversary of the book next year, and yeah. 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 Huh? Huh. I don't think on that. Hmm. Um, do you want to chat about any of your scenes? Um, sure. Do you need to pull some of them up? Sure. Uh, so the, the are you are you sharing again? Or do you want? Um, I am momentarily. Okay. Here we go. So the first two I pulled were the grandfather and the son. He's right, the, sorry, the grandson. Um, and I, I grabbed these for my class last month. It's been so quick. Uh, uh, but I also tried to grab some of the ones with the iconic uh, things. So the, the skepticism of the this is a kissing book. And I know, I think I've told this anecdote to the students in my class, but I remember when I was teaching secondary school, I had a tradition of giving my graduating students each a book that I thought they would love. And I gave The Princess Bride to my, can I say this? My most fun student. Uh, <laughs> if you're watching this ever, <laughs> I can, and you didn't get The Princess Bride, I guess you weren't my most fun student. Um, but, and he was, you know, he was an 11th grade boy and, and oh. sweet and he loved Jane Eyre and he was not afraid of kind of girl books, but he had this, this passion for adventure stories. And I was like, oh, the Princess Bride, that's perfect for him. And I handed it to him and he looked at me and he went, the Princess Bride. <laughs> I was like, oh, right. It's not what it sounds like. It's not what it sounds like. You're like, stick with me. <laughs> just, just give it a try. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that skepticism, like this is really Goldman's fictitious son playing, playing the part of, of skeptic, like what's going on with this book? Is, is this even going to be worth it? What's going on with me? And it's, it's the only nod we really get to the, the bigger scope of Goldman's frame narrative that doesn't just get subsumed into the, the grandfather. The only bit we really get of his son being like, no, this, this book was so boring. Come on, dad. Mm-hmm. Right, because of course, again, they're they're kind of collapsing. On the one hand, he's the son, but on the other mm -hmm. hand, it's also Goldman himself. Like Fred yeah, Savage yeah. is kind of playing Goldman uh, yeah. in, in, in a sense, yeah. And and kind of winning the audience over too, right? Like we could all be stepping into this movie, going, "I got dragged along to this," you know. So like in in an instant, they're kind of appealing to the people that wanted to come to the movie because they're happy they're watching the movie, and the people that didn't to be like, mm -hmm. "Hang on." There's rodents of unusual sizes. There's sword fighting. There's pirates. There's revenge. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they get yeah. that out of the way really early. Um, mm -hmm. 
but it works with the frame. It's one of the um, things that I like. It's it's this element is one of the things. So again, I'm I I I love you know like meta narrative structures. I really enjoy those, um, and it's my favorite element of the Princess Bride, the book. Like it's one of the things that I love most mm-hmm. about the book is that whole like third layer. And again, I don't ever I don't I mean I don't find the narrative that he tells about himself i don't find he i don't find the william goldman editorial character a very appealing character and i don't find his story a very interesting story um however i love the whole technique like i love that whole sort of approach and the way in which um the i've always felt i've always admired i mean i think even like as a kid watching the princess bride i always had a kind of admiration for the way in which the conversation between the grandson and and the grandfather um has this like you know meta effect uh, you know to manage the audience expectations for the film as well um and to, you know the the way in which it kind of treads the line between like fairy tale and reality right contrast between fairy tale and reality um functioning as a kind of like apologia for fairy tales, right? Like we're going to acknowledge, like we're not just going to ask you to simply invent. We're not just going to tell us a fairy tale from beginning to end. Like there are films that do that kind of thing, but this is not one of those films, right? We're going to acknowledge the real world and start with, you know, your, uh, uh, I think that's an Atari game. Um, but I have to, I'd have to, I have to, I, I'm trying to remember what controller he's holding in his hands when uh, uh, when when the film begins. But anyway, um, uh, you know, so it starts you know within the world, which was so um, demonstrably the real world. Um, you know, faith as you were uh, sort of you know joking that you know one of the biggest problem with uh, Maggie's impersonation today is she doesn't have like an array of representative cultural objects behind her. Uh, you know as. <laughs> as the grandson did. Um, I'm like, I can try to find a He-Man if you want. Uh. (laughs) Right. But like all of those things which kind of contextualize and kind of, not just contextualize this sort of the son and his life in this kind of real world connection, right? But the way in which you can see, actually, can you go back up to the kissing book slide, right? So if you look at the things that are in the background, right, there are some things which just kind of say, you know, boy, Right. Like mm-hmm. the sports car and the Jeep. Right. And the uh, and even the untidiness of the bookshelves and things like that. Right. Um, but the other things, the He-Man figures, the Captain America. Right. That we can see show that actually <clears throat> he is interested in you know, sort of fantasy stories of a particular kind, right? That he is into imaginative stories and there is some element of imaginative escape that he is accustomed to. Um, and yet he's resistant to the sort of the fairy. Anyway, the, the way in which it, the film really kind of addresses and packages the relationship that an audience has with uh, a, a, a sort of a fantasy work um, you know, here's another thing. Here's another like essay that hasn't been written, I think, that really needs to be written, which is thinking about uh, the film, the Princess Bride film through the lens of the of uh, Tolkien's vocabulary and on fairy stories, like thinking about things like uh, you know, escape, uh, you know, consolation and recovery. Um, 
uh, and how the film, you know, thing is just as <clears throat> as fairy story and the power of, you know, of, of, of fairy tale and how it's depicted and its interaction with characters in the real world and their own investment in it and everything. Uh, there's a way in which I think those things are being unconsciously because I don't suspect either Goldman or, you know, Rob Reiner necessarily of being, you know, readers of on fairy stories. And yet, I think you can see them doing some very similar kinds of things there. Um, not all. <clears throat> there's some, some definite differences, too. But as I say, that would be a really interesting, another really oh. interesting uh, essay or talk. And again, it just makes me think about familiarity with audience. You know, if you want to connect with somebody, we've all seen a bedroom like this. It's very familiar. It's not mm-hmm. alienating. And when you do go to the grandfather, like I was always struck by the Christmas decorations in the background because mm-hmm. that makes it a warm, homey, cozy type feel that, you know, I put on a Christmas movie when I want to feel nice. And the Princess Bride has this kind of slight little slant of the same vibe to it almost accidentally. Right. In, in fact, it, it probably was... should start getting marketed as a Christmas movie. It's clearly set at Christmas time. Yes. So, yes. yeah, clearly. I'm down with that on the clearly. list. And as, uh, Vandale is pointing out that he is in fact playing on the Commodore 64. So thank you. I appreciate that. That's I said, as I said, I'm trying to remember the controller. He, I would have recognized it if I'd seen the, if I could conjure up the mental image of the controller. Okay. Oh, I love our yep. crew. Commodore 64. Yep. Yep. I didn't have that game. I didn't have a Commodore 64, but I had a cousin who did. Uh, so uh, I, I definitely uh, remember the Commodore 64. Um, but anyway, yeah, there's an, I, 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 and so but anyway, the bigger point that I was going to make is that the way that this sort of the way that the film is playing with these meta levels of audience reception and uh, and really consciously constructing those did seem to me like a really elegant adaptation of the book. Like So on the one hand, it strips away that third level that we were talking about earlier. But in stripping it away, it doesn't make it less meta. It just kind of a, I mean, oh, well, it is less meta in one sense. Like we don't get that. The dynamic that we lose is like if we had the story of like the director or the story of the screenplay writer, you know, uh, or like a voiceover commentary would be probably the the thing. Right. Like like watching one of the, you know, the director's commentaries of the Lord of the Rings films. Right. Where we're getting the film, but we're also getting the voiceover from the from the directors. Something like that would be like a, a way to kind of introduce that same kind of third layer outside. Um but anyway, the, the the ways in which it's 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 finessing the different uh, metal meta storytelling levels, I think it it works very elegantly in the film. Can can I read two paragraphs from the book of the yeah. Princess Bride? Yeah. Because this this is what we're missing. Uh, so this is from the start of chapter two, which is functionally chapter three because there's the whole long introduction that's really a chapter before chapter one chapter one is the the bride um and chapter two is called the groom and it opens and in the in the book i don't know if you can see this but in the book um goldman uses italics to to describe his editorial interventions and then the rest of the book is in uh just upright text so he goes this is my first major excision Chapter one, The Bride, is almost in its entirety about the bride. He's just finished that one. Chapter two, The Groom, which is the one that he's writing about right here, only picks up Tumperdink in the last few pages. This chapter is where my son Jason stopped reading, and there is simply no way of blaming him. 
For what Morgenstern has done is open this chapter with 66 pages of Florinese history. More accurately, it is the history of the Florinese crown. Dreary? Not to be believed. Why would a master of narrative stop his narrative dead before it had much chance to begin generating? No known answer. All I can guess is that for Morgenstern, the real narrative was not Buttercup and the remarkable things she endures, but rather the history of the monarchy and other such stuff. When this version comes out, I expect every Florinese scholar alive to slaughter me. Columbia University has not only the leading Florinese experts in America, but also direct ties to the New York Times Book Review. I can't help that, and I only hope they understand my intentions here are in no way meant to be destructive of Morgenstern's vision. Um, and there's a couple other ones. Uh, there's a really great one where he's, he's talking about some of the other history, but he frames it as this boring history book that happens to have this great story in there that he has managed to extract. Yeah. And so if you believe him, then what he's left out is like history book, like, I don't know, like Dateline or Newsnight or whatever those like late night, let me summarize the, the stocks and the, and the politics right. of the day for you. So he, he wants you to feel like you're not really missing anything, even though some of his bits are really funny. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a bit where he talks about the, I think the princess of Gilder coming to visit Florin and how many pages it takes for her to pack her wardrobe and how many pages it takes for her to unpack her wardrobe. And then two more times she packs to go home and then she unpacks at home. And then he's like, and all these references to her clothes and her hats, the Florinese scholars say are really descriptions of the, the wealth and comparative value of the two <clears throat> countries and a political statement. And I just, I, I love that, but I, it doesn't work in the film. Yeah. Like that depth, of research and belief of your own fiction to the point that you're convincing us that you were bored by your own creation uh, that's lovely but yes yeah, very hard to not impossible i'm sure we could find a way to try it but i do think that's one of those examples of the bravery where he was like that's not going to be as clear as what i could do so i'm going to do this instead yeah yeah um yeah, I love my, my, some of my favorite elements are the, where he's taught. Like, I love how he talks about the Florinese scholars um, yeah. and how like he's expecting to be blackballed for life by the Florinese. <laughs> and that like and they, they have connections with like the mafia and everything. So like he's, you know, <laughs> yeah, this uh, this 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 vision that he kind of creates of the uh, it's not just that Florin exists. It's that yeah. Florin is this kind of like low key global powerhouse, you know, and the, like the people who study it are extremely influential. Are the mafia. And he's committing career suicide by doing what he's doing, but like he's going to do it anyway. I mean, it's it's really funny. That's great. Academic mafia. Mm. Yeah. Give me the truck on. Uh, so I pulled this one and the two next ones because they were to me examples of some of the really obvious changes because that internal narrative is so obvious right um so that because the original one is just sharks and he changes it to the shrieking eels um and if you have the actual dvd there's a, a really great like three minute clip of carrie elway's filming robin wright pen when she gets out of the water um, and she's like, that was terrifying. I was really genuinely scared because they just shoved an electric thing in the water with me to <laughs> flap around and, and look like an eel. And I was really worried I was going to get electrocuted. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, it's fine. 
so just just the, the you know sharks change to shrieking eels, and I think one of the one of the things in the forest changes very slightly. The you know the zoo of death I've already mentioned zoo changes death, to the, yeah, pit, the of pit of despair. despair. Yeah. But this like shark to eel thing is one of the ones that makes me go why. Like, why yeah. do you think that's not a consequential shift? Why would you shift it? Because it, it sounds better. It feels more fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say eels. the shrieking eels, right? It's yeah. and and it has um, there is. The yes, the, the 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 speech that we get from Fasini, right? You know, mm-hmm. do you hear that, Highness? Those are the shrieking eels, right? The the dread and anticipation of her imminent death is I mean, yeah, like you can get dread and anticipation of imminent death when you fall into shark infested waters, but it's a different (laughs) kind of fear. It's a different kind of dread. You know, there is something, this, this, this magical element that's added, that's added to it. I don't know. I'm I'm reminded in a, in a completely different context of, um, it, uh, but a passage in which C.S. Lewis is talking about different kinds of fear. And he talks about the difference between being told that there's a tiger in the next room and that there's a ghost in the next room, right? In mm. either case, you might be afraid, yeah. but you're talking about a very different kind of fear. Um, and in other contexts, you know, Lewis talks about like the, the way in which that kind of, like I'm thinking also of that when he did, when C.S. Lewis did a comparison of the book and the film adaptation of King Solomon's Mines, mm. um, yeah. and he was talking about how in the film version, so in the book version of uh, Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines, they're shut into this ancient tomb of the dead, which they've discovered and they can't escape. And they're anticipating slow death of like thirst and, and or starvation um, among the silent tombs of the dead. Um, whereas in the film, they introduce a volcanic explosion um, as like the immediate danger that they're, that they're trying to escape. Yeah. And the point that Lewis is making there, I believe that's in on stories is that those two things, it's not just that the film, you know, ratchets up the tension more He's by ratcheting up the tension they've utterly changed the quality of the experience. Like you have utterly lost the, the fear of like the, 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 the kind of horror of I am locked in the tombs of the dead and I shall die here mm-hmm. with the dead um, versus I'm running away from lava. Like both are terrifying, but in wholly different ways. And in, in this, it's, I mean, those are in some ways more dramatic examples, but I feel a similar kind of thing about the different, the change between shark infested waters and waters infested by the shrieking eels uh, who always sing before they feast on human flesh. Um, there's a difference in the quality of that, of that. Well, story. And, especially, and it's a fascinating choice. And introducing the auditory element, you know, like shark swimming in a circle is almost cartoonish. Like that's what right. we see as a threat. In, in Disney cartoons and things like that. So having mm-hmm. the shrieking start to give us that warning, it's like the clock inside the crocodile and Peter Pan or you know right. the, the music yes. of Jaws. It's not the shark right. that scares us, it's the music that scares us. Right. And right. You know, right. so having that kind of element feed in is is way creepier than a shark. Yeah. And I think also Jaws comes out between the book and the movie. So I wonder if that's another reason to move away mm-hmm. from sharks, which sharks. are a known quantity, but also probably a higher budget item. And mm-hmm. also, I mean, the thing about sharks is you're, I don't want to say you're mostly safe. Like, I'm not going to go jump jump and swim with the sharks anytime. <laughs> but they, they respond to blood. 
And yeah. so there's no reason for them to swarm the boat. Just because if, somebody falls out Just of because it. she yeah. falls overboard. Yeah. And eels are totally creepy. Like, no limbs, snake in the water, creepy. So, like, yeah, I do feel like they're way more of a fantasy Loch Ness monster type situation of, like, I don't know what an eel is. I don't want it to touch me. Like, yeah. yeah. But it, right, it, it does really. Sh- that. I'm convinced. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does really show. I mean, but to think about, like, what is the significance of that? Like, the, the significance that they made that choice, right? Like, yeah. Why were they wanting to push? What is the effect of them having pushed it in these directions? These are ways in which it makes sense, right? Um, But of course, the fact that they are pushing this story from simple danger of being eaten by sharks to much more eerie sort of fairy element shrieking eels um, is... and, And to have that happen at one of the most famous moments when the story gets interrupted right mm-hmm. um it is working so well that the grandson is looking nervous right and 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 think about that right the fact that he is being impacted the grandson the listener is being impacted he is having primary world fear reactions um because the story has been made less realistic in a sense mm-hmm. right which is a fascinating again as i say like Man, yeah, that on fairy stories, Princess Bride uh, essay really needs to be written. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I don't have time, so somebody please write it. I'm not staking a claim here. I just want to read it. <laughs> and I feel like that about all three that I've pulled, and also the snow sand, uh, which yes. gets changed to uh, lightning sand. Yeah. Lightning sand, like yeah. they're little tiny subtle changes, and I'm and the rest of it's so close. Yeah. I'm like, okay, the zoo of death makes more sense. Yep. Because it because of the zoo connotations and the animals and the le- levels, and I also love the parallel between the pit of despair and the cliffs of insanity. Yes, I, that's yeah. just a nice up and down, yeah, two different down. bouncing emotions. That's stuck yeah. in both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and needs a lifeline from both. Mm-hmm. Mm. Also, I wonder if, like, you know, some of these more subtle changes, as the screenwriter was the author. Maybe these were things he was just thinking of as options and wanted to try something different for the screen version. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's an element of creativity that could be at play here too, where he wasn't as attached to snow sand as he, we think he should have been because he wrote it. And he was like, well, I'm gonna try lightning here. It sounds cool. <laughs> there, There is that unknown that's kind of interesting. What we lose with the pit of despair for me, not even so much the animals, um, but you were talking in your lecture for my class, Maggie, about through lines. Mm. And one of the sadnesses for me about the, the through line of the Princess Bride is that it pushes uh, Inigo and Fezzik to the sides when, like, all, all you want is more Fezzik, right? They could add <laughs> one more thing, like 10 more minutes of Fezzik's backstory would be the thing I would put in, even mm. though it would ruin the pacing. Uh, but, but nobody would care, right? Because it's under the giant. <laughs> it's amazing. But there's this great scene in the book where Inigo and Fezzik are actually going down into the zoo of death. And they keep like going down a little bit and then like, what's going on here? Oh, there's more weird stuff. And it's just this really fun bonding moment. They get a little bit of character development and get to see them both be brave kind of for the first time because Vizzini is gone. They're, they're doing their own new thing now. And I really miss that scene. You yeah. think that might have been the through line? No, I'm, I'm saying that in, in the 
in the no i don't i don't think so i think we get the through line we get the through line in the rhymes and we get the through line when um when Fezzik mm -hmm. goes back and picks up Inigo Montoya from the from the thieves quarters mm -hmm. uh, but I just I miss that scene because it's a it's it's different yeah and anything that builds relationship I feel like is an immediate attachment to an audience member if you can mm -hmm. convince me to care I am mm -hmm. so much more engaged we talked about that with rings of power it took till episode five or six for me to care about anyone and that doesn't mean that I didn't care, like, oh, they're mm -hmm. stupid. It was just like, I wasn't engaged. I didn't feel any emotion towards them. I just felt analytical. So mm -hmm. it's so nice when you have that opportunity to feel connected and soft and thoughtful and smile mm -hmm. at their jokes and their relationship. And especially yeah. between two men, like that kind of dynamic in the eighties of a sweet friendship of two fighting men. I don't know, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a really neat story to tell. Yeah. Um, oh, we got to talk about Billy Crystal and Carol Kane. Yes. So I pulled this. This is actually uh, the witch bit is is in the book, uh, although it's a little bit more expounded upon. Uh, but I pulled this bit. I couldn't find the. Everybody knows this quotation, uh, right? True love is is better than everything in the world except a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich. But it drives me crazy because in the book it's a cough drop, uh, which works with the sick story. But it also comes in twice. So it's once here in this scene, and then Goldman reiterates it in his own narrative voice at the very end of the book, in his conclusion, like in the in the end paragraph mm -hmm. of of the book, the the true love is better than everything except a cough drop comes back. And while I agree that it's less iconic, it was just one of those things that every time I watch either one now, it's jarring because it's it's wrong. Right. So, oh. Right. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, the the mutton, lettuce, mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich is just all about Billy Crystal's comic delivery. Say, that's got to be Billy yeah. Crystal's riffing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I don't even think that would be funny in print. Yeah. You know, I mean, if if it if it, if like I think if if the exact script that Billy Crystal says had been in the book, it would not have been funny. Um, it's just, it's all about, uh, it's all about his, like the, <laughs> the way that he like gets into like the brief fantasizing about a nice MLT sandwich, right. Uh, and describing oh, nice it and uh, as if to a friend yeah. and then his transition back, but, but, but that's not what he said. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's all about his delivery. I mean, he absolutely makes that line and I assume, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, I would assume mm. he invented that line like that. It sounds like a, like a like an extemporaneous thing by Billy Crystal. It might not be, but. Yeah, I mean, like I it. imagine there's 30 other takes with different lines and that's just the one that they kept, you know, where they just yeah. let comedians riff. And we see that loads in Steve Carell's films and Paul Rudd, like there's so many takes of like him and Will Ferrell making jokes and, and things like that, that I just kind of assumed this is the one they kept because he does deliver it so beautifully. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but a cough drop is something you can relate to. None of us have had a thinly sliced, nice and lean mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich. <laughs> so I think in text, we would all be like, cough drops are great. <laughs> well, and I, think and I actually I... have had a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich, and it was also great, but <laughs> hey, <laughs> never had one. Yeah, the, no, I mean, I, I get coughed, and that, that's a better joke, like, as a printed joke, that's a far better joke. Yeah. Um, you know, you want, I mean, Relatable. the way that they correspond, I mean, like, 
the two words like true love and cough drop, right, are both like two word phrases, which, you know, so like there, there's much more of an interchangeability, you know, there, but it's a comical interchangeability. And um, no, I think it's, it's a but much it better. also links joke. us to the frame narrative. Yeah. Right. right. So it, it yeah. and especially because he delivers it out of character at the end, that's mm -hmm. him as a kid yeah. or him as an adult thinking back to being a kid. Like, here's the summer I was sick. And also, like, I still love cough drops. Right, yeah. right. And do they have cough drops in, in this time? We don't even think about that as being like a reality. It's more of like it brings us into the modern world where like you are really grateful for cough drops. Didn't cross my mind to think about if cough drops actually existed at this time. Right. Well, I mean, they're making miracle pills. I think we can suspend our belief. Right. But he but also that... points out all those anachronisms. Like he points out right. the blue jeans anachronism. Yeah. He points out exactly. a couple of the other anachronisms. There's blue jeans in the book if you have not watched, not read the book. Yeah, uh, yeah no, exactly. I mean, that, the, I do think that the uh, apparent anachronism, it's one of the things that makes it, that makes the joke work, I think, in in the book. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny. That's it's it makes It's what makes it so unexpected because you certainly would not have expected Miracle Max to contrast true love with that, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. All right. I love him. <laughs> so I pulled you two of Inigo Montoya, and they're both kind of doing the same thing. Um, just cause, because of what I talked about earlier, the repetition of the phrase. Uh, if you go back up to just his head, uh, this is the only bit we really get Inigo's backstory. He gives that little narrative while Wesley is recuperating. He yep. gets almost a whole chapter in the book, or at mm. least half a chapter. He has a whole chunk of a chapter. That's something I would miss. These these are really beautiful characters. I would spend more time with them. If they were like, I feel like if this was made now, we'd have a spinoff of the two of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there is backstory. We would have like two seasons, eight episodes, hour each. Mm -hmm. Disney Plus, let's go. See, and and I... he's great. He's just got the Zorro vibes. Yes. Mm. Yes. I um, I don't. And yet it maintains the father son connection, yeah. right? Which. Mm -hmm parallels the whole grandfather grandson frame of the entire thing so mm -hmm. that you know um with the the clear uh, the the tenderness that Mary Patinkin you know conveys in his memories of his father this is not just someone who is like um it's not just about like the family I mean I don't know like there there, there can be vengeance plots that aren't tender <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. um it's uh it's it's really like every time he mentions his father which of course he does repeatedly you know in his uh in his thing it's you get that sense of um you you feel the sort of the backstory mm -hmm. there um i don't think i would add more inigo montoyo backstory in the film i agree with you faith that i would if you know i would also be tempted to add more fezic backstory if it were practicable Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think I would add more Inigo Montoya. I'm not saying that I disliked it in the book, mm -hmm. but I actually felt like um, they struck a marvelous balance of conveying his backstory, but then kind of leaving it to, to, to you to fill out in your imagination. Like you see clearly the consequences mm -hmm. of his background. And I don't feel like we need to be told, you know, that um, uh, uh, more, more of the, 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 the details of his story. Not that I would object to a Fezzik and Inigo spinoff uh, yeah. series, mm -hmm. you know, not saying yeah, I would I object in any way, but 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we need any more. I think what we're given is so well done and that we get such ends of these two poles that, you know, we see him drunk and inebriated down on his luck and completely flat out for Fezzik to then save all the way up to super functional winning, you know, the, the sword battle and stuff that seeing that kind of level of, of almost bipolar behavior shows you the trauma of his background and we have enough of the story to kind of get that. And I, I think you really hit it, Corey, when you're talking about the tenderness of a revenge story, yeah. there's, there's something really bold about these, like these polar ends of, of ideas that we get, like, and even the revenge of like the Dread Pirate Roberts, you'd make a wonderful Dread Pirate Roberts. Have you ever thought about that? Like we're all smiling at that moment. And we're talking about this guy becoming like a, a death threatening revenge pirate. And we're all like, oh, that's great. Like being able to have that kind of softness around something that normally is so negative is is rare. And probably why part of the, this is such a draw because it's so unique. All right, we've got three more. Let's see what we can do. Um, so the next two are both Fezzik. Right. Uh, the I haven't fought just one person for so long, which is, again, it's got that that richness behind it. And I, I agree with you, Corey. If I could, ha if I could have ten minutes in the film, mm -hmm. I would give Fezzik seven of them. Ooh. <laughs> and then I would record four different three-minute endings. To or three or four different endings that you could release concurrently. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I love that. What would you do if you had 10 extra minutes in a film? We should do that at the end of each of our uh, <laughs> film analysis episodes. Ooh. Yeah, uh, but is, but, but I question. miss Fezzik's backstory because it's 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 great. And we, we, we have the hints, but we lose so much of it. Yeah. And mm -hmm. we, we and don't have fun. the tenderness and the depth that we do with yeah. Inigo. Yeah. And I'd yeah. love to see how they met too. Like, I mean, we get a snippet, don't we? We've known each other for a long time, but we don't really know mm -hmm. the friendship or origin story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and I mean, the, the dynamic between them works really well, but again, you just get, so I, I'm kind of, I'm pausing because I'm, I'm sort of thinking this through more faith because the almost total ab absence of backstory as you say his this reference to mm -hmm. specializing in chain gangs and that sort of thing you know is really the only hint that we get at at Fezzik's background in the in the film um and as a result they do a great job of evoking the story of Inigo Montoya um, mm -hmm. And again, as I say, I feel lots of freedom to, you know, my imagination can roam over like what his relationship with his father was like and, you know, what his father was like as a person and what this meant to him and everything. Um, we get enough of that that I can. But with Fezzik, we get almost nothing. And we're not even invited in that same way yeah. to imagine things. There's a way in which Fezzik is um, he's just like a I don't know a force of nature, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's this, um, whereas with, with, um, I don't know. I'm thinking about Inigo and Fezzik's relationship, especially when Fezzik finds him after, you know, in the, in the thieves quarter. Um, and how, how Fezzik is just this, this constant, right? Mm 
Um, think also about the way in which he is positioned. Um, first, being hired as a brute by Fizzini, and then being the brute squad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, later on, he's always a a pawn being manipulated Hired by club. other people, right? You know, yeah. he's yeah, he's he's he has no motives himself, yeah. or what motives he has seem to be quite in contrast, right? With uh, like his the fair, uh, you know, the 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 fair fight thing that he has, right? Yeah. Um, with Wesley at the beginning, his insistence on a fair fight, though, you know, he's not supposed to. Uh, he's explicitly instructed to, you know, not fight fair. Um, so it's not that we get no windows into his character at all, but um, but he's like, I, I don't know, victim isn't quite the right word. Um, I mean, it's almost like, simple, isn't it? Like he yes. just kind of is hired thug and just goes with it. And he's got a sweet moral center, perhaps, but he does he's, just go he, and do his hired thug work. Yeah, he's always a patient and never an agent. Like he's always the one being acted on or being acted through. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, except when he recognizes Inigo, right, and makes the choice to protect Inigo, and then you know, uh, 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 you know, wax the other brute squad. Like, that's like one of the only independent actions that yeah. he takes, um, apart, I guess, from uh, uh, taking the Holocaust cloak. And um, and then, of course, getting the horses at the end uh, of the film. Um, but um, and, and that's one of the things that's so beautiful about that at the end. Right. We see he like took initiative and did a thing yeah. on his own. Right. To, yeah. Um, and Inigo is surprised and praises him for it. Yeah. He did something right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, 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 this is me just kind of thinking through the character of Fezzik Faith and thinking about like what in the absence of the backstory, because you're right, the backstory is so colorful um, mm-hmm. and interesting and kind of endearing with Fezzik in the book. Um, in the absence of that, how are they setting up? How are they? Ha- so I'm trying to like maneuver myself into a position where I can really compare and contrast the characters of Fezzik in the book and the film uh, is is kind of. As my meta commentary on the ruminations mm-hmm. on Fezzik that I'm that I've been doing here, that's that's what I that's what I that's what I mm-hmm. uh, am, am, am attempting to get to. I don't even know that his character is different, mm-hmm. and I don't even think you could fit. Seven, I don't even think if I had the seven minutes, it wouldn't fit with the plot. It would it would ruin the film. I mean, we mm-hmm. would, we would love it, but it would yeah. ruin the pacing, as Maggie was right. talking about, because there's there's nowhere to add it. And that's the kill your darlings, you know, like I think people just fall so in love with some of these elements that when you're doing adaptation, it's so hard to cut something that you love because you love it and it works so well in the text. But when you get to a screen and you have to make tough decisions and kill a darling, that's that's a shame. But I think you're right. If we had more Fezzik, it, it would kind of take some of the shine off Inigo, who has such a drive and a revenge motivation mm-hmm. that this contrast of their relationship and the buddy buddy with one kind of leading the story and one kind of supporting the story just works. But I do wonder if they change that dynamic to both of them being some sort of a victim and driving mm-hmm. forward with their different motivations, it wouldn't work as well. Fezzik just loves Inigo. That's beautiful. Like mm-hmm. we don't need much more than that in that point, do we? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, talk about rule of thirds, guys. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> what are your? Th- I know we're 
about out of time, but you've been talking about the endings, Faith, in the book. What are your thoughts about the ending of the film? I mean, if, apart from the fact that we only get the one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with the one that we get, what do you make? Because that was one of the things when I read the book for the first time, I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is so different. So different. Oh, it's crazy. And, um, and can you summarize what it is for folks? There's there's like six. Yeah. Uh, and I was trying to flip and find one. Um, if I can just find it, I'll read it to you. Um, so one of them is, uh, I think the first, first one we actually get is, and they lived happily ever after, my father said. Wow, I said. He looked at me. You're not pleased? No, no, it just came so quick. The ending, it surprised me. I thought there'd be a little more is all. I mean, was the pirate ship waiting or was that just a rumor like it said? And then he finds out, um, he says, the truth was my father was fibbing. I spent my whole life thinking that it ended that way up until I did this abridgment. Then I glanced at the last page. And then he gives you Morgan Stern's ending, which ends with the line, however, like they, they go off on the horses. However, this was before Inigo's wound reopened and Wesley relapsed again and Fezzik took the wrong turn and Buttercup's horse flew through a shoe and the night behind them was filled with the crescendoing sound of pursuit. Um, and then he's like, but actually that's a, a really lame ending. So let me tell you how I think it really went. <laughs> um, and then in a lot of, I think after the 25th anniversary edition, they always add a, a couple chapters of Buttercup's Baby on the end. Yeah. And so that goes into another batch of endings in what, I don't want to spoil all those, but but different things happen in each one. And they just like, it keeps stacking endings. Um, and, and you never get the resolution. There's There's never that pretty cinematic all the horses i mean that's that's the father's ending so that's what the the grandfather is reading to the kid yes but it it misses that kind of bitterness of the frame narrative well and again matches that that beautiful audience expectation of the disney framework of riding off into the sunset we start with an opening book we end with the heroes riding off into the sunset tied up with a nice bow yeah but that's what's yeah, and that, that, that's what's so striking to me is that even it's it, it is in a sense the father's ending from the book, but it's also in a sense the opposite of the father's ending from the mm-hmm. book because what the film does is uh, not only provide us with something that is clearly designed to be like a satisfactory resolution of the story, um, but it goes way out of its way to draw our attention to this, right? The mm-hmm. fact that the grandfather's going to close the book and not read the ending because there's kissing involved and and the grandson doesn't want to hear about that. And then the grandson makes him reopen it, right? Because it's okay. And so, so we get all the, like this huge spotlight Mm -hmm. on this fairy tale kissing ending, right? Um, Which, which, you know, brings the, you know, the, the romantic story, not, but not just the romantic, like the literal, like the sexually romantic story, but the fairy tale romance, Mm -hmm. right. Uh, You know, to its, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of um, on the one hand, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of structurally expected, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of ending and they lived happily ever after um, and conveying that. But anyway, it's like he's, it's not just that they chose one of the endings. They didn't do any of the endings. Yeah. Like they, they, they took the ending in a completely different, like they, they, they put in the stuff that Goldman, the son thought was missing from his father's mm-hmm. uh, expurgated version. Right. 
but then don't add any of the comically cynical stuff that Goldman, the author slash editor, you know, was going back and finding in uh, in in Morgan Stern or uh, you know in the theoretical Morgan Stern or adding to it. Um, so I just I thought that's just another place to me where I felt the choices that were being made in the film were so starkly different and and like the shrieking eels it's a place where like what they're doing is leaning into the fairy tale in a way which mm-hmm. goldman almost never i mean he's resistant to the fairy tale stuff mm-hmm. almost all the way through um it's like he remains fred savage as editor <laughs> right like he doesn't like not 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 100% but i i feel that um mm-hmm. the book feels to me like I'm being pushed away from engagement. Any engage, anytime I threaten to be engaged in the fairy tale world, I'm going to get interrupted by the Morgan Stern, mm-hmm. uh, by the right. by the Goldman editorial voice in order to. Pull Whereas me you're out. right, this one totally leans in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end, yeah. it really and and shows how not only does it give us the opportunity to lean into it and appreciate it, but it emphasizes that it has won over the Fred Savage character who is now himself leaning into it and enjoying it. Right. So that's being modeled for us at the same time that it's being provided to us there at the end. So it's, and I just find the trajectory of that ending in this way, the the kind of meta narrative trajectory of the end of the film. It just seems to me different from radically different from almost anything that I see happening in the book. And I know faith, I might be, I'm sure I'm, I'm, not doing justice to some of the things in the book, perhaps, but um, that just, that was one of the most striking things that I found in studying the book. I mean, what I love about that is because you're limited by the grandfather telling the story, you do get the tidy father, grandfather ending. And I think Mm -hmm. that works and it works for all the Hollywood reasons too. But what I want, and I, Maggie, you've you've got all the the history of cinema in your head. I think Uh, (laughs) what I want is like, in the in the more recent marvel films and a couple other films where they have the bonus scene after yep. the credits yeah. i want the real ending in yeah. the bonus scene and then yeah. it just to trail off like guess what's coming next yeah right and there's no reason they couldn't have done something like that and i wouldn't have put it past them but that was definitely not the era of doing yeah. easter egg scenes at the end of the credits but you could see how well that would work here mm-hmm. that Clue must have come after this because I think I'm also oh, surprised I think so. that he didn't make eight different yeah. endings because I feel like he would have. This is a fun one to play around with that. But leaning into the fairy tale seems to have almost been his exercise in this adaptation. You oh, know, really close. The internet says 1985. So, oh, that's before. That's before. Yeah. Oh, how interesting. Ooh. God, hmm. good movies. We should do Clue. All right, we have to wrap up, but we should yeah. give a hint of what's happening in the next few weeks. Yeah, more than a hint. So, okay, so uh, Maggie and I were brainstorming about this last week, uh, and we decided we totally want to do it. So we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do some holiday adaptation discussion um, uh, over the next two weeks. Um, so we're going to take an iconic work which has been the subject of dozens of adaptations. We're gonna look at. Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and we're going to be exploring different avenues, like this as a a sort of a broader case study in different approaches to adaptation. So, in uh, the first, we're going to have two discussions on A Christmas Carol. Um, And so next week, the plan is to look at classic adaptations of the Christmas, like classic straight up 
retelling and like close, adaptations. You know, we've talked yeah. about close and loose adaptations. Think of it as like kind of the close adaptation version exactly. of, of things that we've seen. And then in the second week, we're going to look at um, uh, more uh, sort of free, yeah, more, more of the, yeah, those, those kind of, uh, um, uh, rearrangement, uh, adaptations, uh, so of, just so you know what we've yeah. been thinking of, so you can do your homework before next right. week, you better darn believe that Muppet Christmas Carol is a close Muppet Christmas Carol is going to feature. Yeah. That's definitely <laughs> Absolutely one of the classics. So next week, the close one will be Muppet Christmas Carol. The, I didn't look up the year 1956. Was that the, the original, something like that? um we talked about mickey's christmas carol was mickey's christmas carol yeah one of our yeah. first associations with that story i want to talk about mickey's like... christmas carol because i know for a fact it was my intro i saw that long before i read dickens's work Same. uh and before i had seen any other adaptation of it and if you're not too proud to admit it i bet you there are plenty of people in the audience for whom that was also the case so it seems to me like uh i from, even just from a cultural standpoint, an important place to look as, you know, this version of the story, this adaptation of the story, which was the introduction of that story uh, to. And I will and like I, and I will confess, like, if you just come up to me unexpectedly and say the words Bob Cratchit, I'm going to picture Mickey Mouse in my head. Like, I, that's <laughs> the first thing that's going to pop into my oh, head. See, it's when, now been you know. replaced by Kermit for me. But my well, initial got was it. also yeah. Mickey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the second week, we'll give a list next week, but the second week, we'll do more of the modern interpretations. So we've talked about Doctor Who. We've talked about um, Spirited, the new one that's out with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell, Scrooged, the um, Bill Murray comedy from early 90s, like 94 is in my head. But yeah. 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 So. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's so that's homework for next week. So we're gonna we're gonna talk first. We're gonna we're, we're gonna look at some of these retellings in different modes, right? Um, but uh, all of which are doing a retelling of the story, uh, and then we're gonna look at some of the other forms of adaptation. And again, the goal throughout these is to be thinking about relationship between book and adaptation. To be yeah, to be looking at these as again these kinds. <laughs> Again, I, I'm tempted to use the word neutral in the sense that I, I I suspect that there are I know that there are some people who are like huge Dickens fans who are like, oh, this is horrible. They're like they've totally destroyed Dickens book, you know, in this. But again, for most of us looking back to the Dickens novel is uh, more emotionally neutral ground uh, and that we can we can do some more comparing and contrasting. So um, watch those three films uh, for next week if you get a chance. <clears throat> and of course, if you're really ambitious, you'll also reread Dickens' A Christmas Carol to have it all fresh for our discussion. So there you go. I'm going to, I'm actually going to try to do that. That's my goal is to, to read I want to try to listen to it. There's got to be some beautiful recordings of it. Oh yeah. Gonna, that, well, when I say I'm going to read it before next week, that's what I mean. That's how I read. Yeah. Read with my <laughs> you're eyes. Read I with try not ears. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. And going forward, like we're absolutely going to keep Lord of the Rings as a through line in this. And as things come up, we'll keep talking about it, but we're pretty excited to talk about other stuff and expand the audience too. So you know, don't be surprised if we do Princess Bride again and I bring Carrie Evans Cooper back in to tell me stories about what happened on set and, and yeah. other things that we want to reach out to some talent and cast and crew and everybody else and whoever wants to join us in chat. Great. Faith, anytime you want to come back, you give us a shout. Love to. Thank you so much for having me. Fun.
Very good. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, so we'll be back for some some Christmas adaptation discussion next week. Uh, that should be a lot of fun. Uh, thanks, everybody. And we will see you guys. Thanks again, Faith, for joining us. That was really fun. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay. Bye, everybody. You see you next week. <laughs>